The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. Well, we better get out of here. You'll be late for class. <clears throat> Sorry. Where are we? We are back at the starting gate, Doctor. And you are going to remain at the starting gate. Mr. Smith? This explosive little device here will go off in... Uh... You're mad! I? I think not. The world I see around me that's mad. A world filled with spineless, aimless, submissive creatures passing themselves off as human beings. I must do something to help these mental lepers regain their health. Well, then why don't you give us spineless, aimless creatures another chance to see your way of life? He who establishes a dictatorship and does not destroy Brutus. Or he who forms a republic and does not destroy the sons of Brutus will reign only a short time. Thank you, Brother Machiavelli. Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, May 11th, 2017. I'm Bob Metz. I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing. It's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be all right. Robert and I are joined by two folks who are becoming regulars on the show. One of them is Amir Farahi, Executive Director of the London Institute. Amir, welcome back. Thanks, good beer. And the other is Salim Mansour, Western University's Associate Professor of Political Science. And welcome to the show again, Salim. Thank you, Bob. We're going to be talking about American foreign policy today. But first, you can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org. Subscribe to Just Right on iTunes. Hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 Shortwave. Visit us at www.justrightmedia.org, where you can access all of Just Right's social media links, including Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and, of course, all of our past broadcasts. Well, Trump has certainly already had, you know, had his honeymoon period over. I guess he never had one, according to a lot of people. Dealing with the whole issue of his foreign policy, I thought we'd just kick off with this a couple of comments that Gwyn Dyer made in his commentary of May the 4th. And in that, he notes that Trump's foreign policy has turned out to be less radical than feared. In fact, it's not radical at all. He has already fired cruise missiles at a Middle Eastern country, a ritual that has been observed by every American president since Bill Clinton. I thought that was funny. And then he says, Obama broke decisively with foreign policy orthodoxy in Washington. Hillary Clinton, apparently was in the totally orthodox in foreign policy and would follow the playbook, he, he says, whereas Trump shares Obama's distrust of foreign policy elite. What do you think about some of those comments? Well, very quickly, uh, I would say that uh, tr- Trump's instinct has been more or less traditional in the following sense. Trump's going to talk softly and carry a big strip which means Trump is not going to lead from behind, uh, which is what Obama's uh, notable statement was, leading from behind. Trump won't lead from behind, but Trump will talk softly and will carry a big stick, and that was what was demonstrated last April 7th 
when the Chinese president Xi Jinping was visiting him in Mar-a-Lago, Florida, before he sat down for dinner with the Chinese president, he sent out a tweet, I would call it. The tweet was 59 Tomahawk missiles uh, <laughs> uh, on Bashar Assad's assets, the Air Force assets. Uh, the, the concern being that Bashar had once again used uh, chemical weapon against his people. So there it was, you know, he was having his wine and his dinner, and uh, as the story goes, uh, a beautiful chocolate cake was brought out, and Trump whispered to the president of China that his navy had just launched 59 tweets, <laughs> <So he laughs> <laughs> Tomahawk missiles. So that's, that's the classic. Uh, and it goes back to um, Theodore Roosevelt. It goes back to Eisenhower. It goes back to Ronald Reagan. America's position in the world is indispensable. Trump understands that. One can critique Trump on a 24 by 7 Time scale, which is what the American media is all about now, uh, almost 100% anti-Trump. So there has been no honeymoon. But I'm not surprised in the sense that Trump will be, in that sense, traditional. Yeah, I, I'm not surprised either. If you look at most of what he campaigned on, I remember many times when Trump said, the current military, for example, announces four months ahead of time when they want to go into Mosul. Yes. Then three weeks coming up to the attack, they r- remind the ISIS militants that they're going to be attacking to let them know that they're going to be in those locations. And I remember clearly Trump saying when he was running for president that he's no longer going to do that. He's not going to make those announcements and he's going to be focused on more surprise attacks. And he even said when the media questioned Trump, you know, what are your plans to do X, Y and Z? He said, well, I'm not going to tell you. Why would I announce that? (laughs) Right? Seemed logical to us. Yeah. And so he's really following through with that and he's taking action on that. So when when we saw the the attacks on Assad's military basis, one, it was a sign to show that when America says there's going to be a red line and when someone like Assad crosses it, we're going to take action. Unlike what we saw with Barack Obama when he said that if Assad does such and such and there's going to be a red line, he never took action. We see that Trump's going ahead and doing exactly what he said he would do. I'm not surprised. You're concerned, though, about um, the United States bombing the military facilities of what is essentially an ally of Russia. Well, it is, it is a concern if it uh, escalates, but I think it was a precision uh, target. I don't think it, it was an, uh, a declaration of an all-out war, but it, one, it was, it was one to send a message to Assad, which I think is necessary at this point. Um, I think that it's not mutually exclusive to be at war with uh, the radical Islamic fascists in, in the Middle East and in tandem also taking control of what's happening there as well. But uh, I think it's important to make sure that we do send a signal to Assad and the Iranians and, and the rest of the players in the Middle East that if a red line has been crossed, there needs to be serious measures taken. My concern, yes, uh, with Russia is there as well in the sense that we don't ever want to get to a point where Russia and the United States are in a, you know, an actual war and that their, their assets, the Russian assets, are targeted rather than Assad. My thoughts on on this matter that Robert raised is more or less that Trump was not only carrying, uh, talking softly and carrying a big stick, Trump also, with his uh, 59 Tomahawk missile tweeting, 
blew away the six-month narrative that the Democrats and the Democratic allies in the media had spun that Trump was in collusion with uh, Putin in Moscow and, and that, that Trump uh, would not do anything. Uh, in fact, Trump would coordinate his policy with Moscow. But with one stroke, he blew away that thing. I mean, then and that was never, in in that sense, had any basis in reality. Uh, it was a sort of a way to give credence to H Hillary Clinton that she lost the election, not because of her faults, but because there had been, you know, uh, this collusion that took place. So that was at play, and that that needs to be put on the table. But I also think that the issue of uh, what's happening in the Middle East and the actions that are being taken, uh, as opposed to what may happen in the Far East, and possibly we'll get into that, is that these are police actions. There is no war being declared. There is no war going on. I mean, these are police actions, if you want to make that distinction. And there are, in those sense, rules and regulations. Whether they are followed or not followed depends upon what are the interests at stake. Trump's action uh, on April 7th was ironically, if you put it in context, was reinforcing America's position, which uh, Obama had abandoned. That after Obama in 2012 had laid down the red lines with the backing of the Congress, and in a sense of American allies, both in the Middle East and in Europe, uh, then he backed away. I want to ask you about that. As a matter of fact, you were leading into my question about um, police actions. A lot of the supporters of Trump supported him because he gave the impression that he would not be using police actions. His slogan of America first seems to have been pushed aside when all of a sudden a dictator from thousands of miles away gasses his own people. All of a sudden, Trump is sending hundreds of millions of dollars of American uh, armaments over there to bomb their hangars, that upset a lot of Trump supporters who think that that's not our fight, that's not our problem, this is not the UN's responsibility to protect clause coming into play here, we don't have to do this. Your, your thoughts on Trump upsetting that base? I still think that America needs to play a role in terms of enforcing international uh, international laws at some point. I think the measures that were taken by the Trump administration were, were right. You know, the, the tr supporters of Trump are concerned about state intervention in toppling governments and, and going out into all-out sort of wars. But I think it was clear during the campaign that Trump did say we're going to take out extremists in the Middle East and that we're going to make sure we're taking uh, rightful measures when there is uh, th either threats to the national security of the U.S., or when there are certain regulations broken. In this case, with the chemical attacks, it seemed to be the case that it was. You could argue from the perspective of the supporters of Trump that the studies and the evidence provided by the United Nations, or lack thereof, uh, can be questioned. But I still think that certain measures need to be taken when dictators like Assad go ahead and gas their own people. It, it was clear that when Trump said, we are going to go in an all-out war against ISIS, we are going to deal with the issues at hand in the Middle East, um, that he was going to take action on that. And I think this is one of many steps that he will be taking to do that. We saw with the mother of all bombs when it was dropped uh, in Afghanistan that he was, again, going ahead with what he campaigned on, and that was to take out extremists, and he did that again there as well. 
Uh, in, in, in a larger philosophical sense, I think that's true. But during a campaign, a lot of things have been said. And the question is, to what extent foreign policy was his major issue as opposed to domestic policy was his major issue, number one. Number two, the basic core Trump supporter, let's call them the Archie Bunkers of American politics, which is 40%, that might have you know, some sense of dismay over Trump's action, but they have nowhere else to go. They are with him. They are his yeah. core supporter. <clears throat> Trump also then has to reach out others, and he has to broaden that coalition, you know. And so when we open the remarks, this, this session with Bob's views about to what extent Trump has become traditional, my observation is that there will always be that interaction. And so talking softly and walking with a big stick is that traditional, and there will be that. And America is an indis indispensable power, and America has to play a role. The question is, and I think Amir has hit the nail on this, Trump is not a person proposing regime change. And the Tomahawk missiles fired off at Bashar Assad, the Syrian Air Force assets, were not a signal of a regime change. There's no, no such thing on the table. It is that you guys have got to play within your rules. And his commitment, which is, again, he has not backed off, is that he will destroy ISIS. And that's what we have to see as it unfolds. Your pardon, Your Grace. Has the Prime Minister never thought of sending a protest to the United States about this Californian fellow and his imitation wine? My dear chap, I have sent not one protest, but three. Mind you, the situation is complicated by the fact that we have never officially recognized the United States, so we've had to send all our protests through Monte Carlo. The sad truth is that each of these protests have been ignored until today when I received this. What is it, Bobo? A pamphlet from their Department of Agriculture on how to grow grapes for wine. But if that goes on, we'll be bankrupt. My friend, we are bankrupt. As of today, we are living on petty cash. Good heavens. Gentlemen, our situation is indeed desperate. We stand poised on the brink of disaster. There is only one way out, war. We must declare war on the United States. <laughs> but we can never win such a war. Of course not, but we could win the peace. I've given this a lot of thought, gentlemen, and I'm perfectly positive I am right. You must remember, the Americans are a very strange people. Whereas other countries rarely forgive anything, the Americans forgive everything. There isn't a more profitable undertaking for any country than to declare war on the United States and to be defeated. No sooner is the aggressor defeated than the Americans pour in food, machinery, clothing, technical aid, and lots and lots of money for the relief of its former enemies. In other words, gentlemen, in effect, we declare war on Monday, we are defeated on Tuesday, and by Friday we will be rehabilitated beyond our wildest dreams. Yes, but is that honest, Bobo? No, not really, but it's terribly practical. Let's turn our uh, sights to Europe right now and the recent election which saw Marine Le Pen go down to defeat and uh, what's called a centrist or uh, an elitist be elected in uh, Macron. 
Um, your thoughts on the election? Uh, let's start with Salim. Marine Le Pen's uh, defeat was very predictable. There was, you know, her winning would have been uh, a tectonic shift in not only French politics, but in European politics, and in fact, maybe global politics. But the fact that she was defeated and it was predictable doesn't mean that you discount what she represents, which is, you well, know... Not with 35% of which the Which is 35% and inching forward to 40%. And if it, if she reaches, or uh, National Front reaches somewhere around about 40%, then uh, it will be very close to t- coming to power. But then look at it the flip side. It was a landslide victory, and that too was predictable. Uh, numbers that I have seen, 90% of Parisians voted for uh, Macron. The establishment heavily invested in Macron in every sense, and, and the establishment won. And what does this mean in the larger sense of world politics, European politics, and what we saw uh, six months ago uh, with uh, Trump's winning, and before that, six months ahead, before that, Brexit? It It is very, very clear that the major issue in global politics, the main divide is between globalists on the one side, open borders, international trade, money, banking, uh, and uh, the United Nations, international law in that sense. And on the other side is the rising tide of populism, nationalism, that borders count, that national sovereignty count, that the cultures of nation-state count, and that these should not all vanish in that globalist dog's breakfast, you might say, when Macron says that France has no culture, Justin Trudeau says Canada has no culture, Angela Merkel then says, you know, let's bring in whatever numbers uh, from the Middle East. I think that is going to be the driving issue, and it leads to some very serious thinking on on the part of everyone. Are we merely a robotic instrument voting away our consumer passion calculated on an index of economic values. So that means, yes, we are robots, economic, you know, robots. Or we are thinking, living, flesh and blood people with memories, history, values, that is culture. And I think that is where it's going to be. Uh, Since the end of the Cold War, Europe and America, that is Clinton, George Bush Sr., George Bush Jr., they have driven the Western politics in that globalist direction. And Brexit, Trump, Le Pen, all of this represents the other side. And I think that's the oscillation we are going to see for the next decade or so. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's going to be interesting to see the German elections coming up in September. It's going to be interesting to see uh, the Italian elections as well. These are all going to play a significant role in the makeup of what happens in Europe. But, you know, I found it really interesting when the, the establishment media said that Macron was his outsider. Yes. I, 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 was, I was just going to ask Salim about that because he said the establishment invested in them. Here's yeah. a person who was a major banker in France, was then a, an advisor to the Hollande government, and then became the economic minister to the Hollande government, is very well entrenched in the establishment. In fact, the establishment, after the first round of votes, totally got behind him. Every single okay. party, other than the National Front, got behind Macron. So the, I, the, the fact that the media not only has held away certain information that has come out recently through 
uh, WikiLeaks has protected Macron, and same with the establishment. It just baffles me that we could even call him an outs- an outsider. Um, so he, he's definitely an insider. That's that's. Well, that. Wouldn't you agree, on Amir, that uh, the media calling him an outsider is just to dress him up? Oh, absolutely. Make, to make him palatable. So exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yes. So he was an establishment guy through and through. He's a product of the French school system. You know. Yeah. Everybody all the elite the schools. Yeah. Yeah. And so. Yeah. Uh, so, but one thing that's very interesting is this: that uh, the statistics that came out of the the election show that about forty four percent of the youth vote went to Le Pen. That's a pretty high number. Very high for the youth vote, yeah. And so that tells me that the future of where France might be headed, if we're looking at the 2022 election, might be more in favor of someone like Le Pen. Well, Nigel Farage has already called it. Yes. <laughs> Saying that she uh, then, get elected then. Exactly. Then, then let's say the elections in 2017. It, and, you know, the socio-demographic and economic makeup of France is changing quite significantly. I, I, the urban centers are were voting heavily for, for Macron. There's a clear divide if you look at the country's map, east side of the country is voting predominantly for Le Pen. West side is voting predominantly for Macron. So the, the urban-rural divide is quite high. People that are working class who have been hit hard by globalization uh, tend to be leaning more towards uh, Le Pen because she's about the interests of the nation rather than the interests of globalists. And so we definitely saw that play as well. I think the fact that she, uh, the, the Front National has gone from where it was, let's say, in 2002 to where it is right now in 2017 is, is a huge sign that there is a lot of frustration and anger in France, similar to what we've seen in with Brexit and with the United States. And that will only, I think, increase. It's not going to decrease until there are serious measures and controls on immigration, on economic policies, and on monetary policy. We are going to see an increase in the number of people who would favor someone like Le Pen than we would see someone uh, like Macron. You think the Trump administration regards the election victory in, in France as a setback for them or as a step forward? Well, there, there, is, there is an element here, uh, which is the Anglo-Saxon uh, uh, value system or organ, uh, uh, organization as opposed to what we might call the European Gallic cultural factor. And you can see that. I mean, uh, Canada is divided itself, I mean, between the Anglo-Saxon, English-speaking Canada, and how we think and how we look at the world or would like to see as opposed to Quebec, you know, so the Gallic culture. The Gallic culture is far more state-dependent, and state-dependent means Mm establishment-dependent, and the establishment will decide the course of action. It's interesting that what Amir says uh, about the youth, 40% of the youth voting for Le Pen and and National Front, the interesting inside that 40% is how heavily the gay segment of the French population voted. And it leads back to, again, the argument, you know, that do national cultures matter or is it multiculturalism? It is globalism. Because within France, within Europe, the tension between multiculturalism means accommodating multiculturalism means, uh, which nobody wants to speak about, the, the elephant in the room is the Islamists. 
they are not being uh, squeezed. They are not being curtailed. In fact, they are being appeased. And that's what Macron is, appeasement. That's what Angela Merkel is, appeasement. Whereas the switch that has taken over in the Anglo-Saxon culture is, no, we will not appease them. Or at least we are going to try to stiffen our back. And that's what... Trump represents, what Theresa May represents, what Nigel Farage represents. It's unfortunate that the WikiLeaks leak on Macron and his views on the Islamization of France uh, only came out the day of the election. I think it was Saturday or late Friday. And French laws, of course, prohibit any discussion by anybody on anything to do with the election. But in that leak, if it's to be believed, and I don't see any reason why it shouldn't, Uh, Macron has been quoted as saying that rather than a hard Islamization of France, we should accept a soft Islamization of France. In other words, get used to it. We'll be Muslim at some point in time in the future. Uh, That doesn't actually come to a surprise to me. I think uh, he's been quoted a couple of times where he says, and even the the mayor of London, uh, England, has said this as well, that this notion of terrorism, we got to get used to it. Because yes, he did say yeah. that, didn't he? And and part of, it's part of living in a big city. He said, it, yeah, exactly. The new normal, they call it. Yeah, it's the new normal. Yeah, and so you know that that these kind of things uh, they're troubling uh, to, to say the least. But it they're doesn't, not normal it, doesn't sur- it doesn't surprise <laughs> me. Here's someone who is pro EU. Uh, in fact, when he came out to do his speech at the, at the rally, he came out with the EU anthem even though yes. he just got elected the in old France. joy, yes. <laughs> um, so this is someone who is clearly a globalist, who is completely in favor of open borders and will embrace the massive number of people who are migrating from North Africa into, into France without any serious vetting processes in place and without any hard controls. And so I'm not going to be surprised if we see further Islamization of, of France um, I think it actually helps him uh, w- and with his voter base uh, because the more he appeases to them and the more he appeases to French citizens that are of the radical side of Islam, then, you know, obviously the more power he has. And so it's not it's not to any, anyone. It shouldn't be to anyone's surprise. There. Are we isolated and ignorant over here in North America? Is it right for us over here, isolated so far from that theater of conflict, to, to assume that national borders over there will work as they do here? Um, historians point out that civilization carry a lot of ruin. So we're talking about not only nation states or national boundaries, we're also talking about Europe and European history, and it carries a lot of ruin. But behind the ruin is also a sense of culture. And that's also a sense of history. So yes, the border between Poland and Germany have changed in the 20th century because of two world wars, and same with France, and same with Italy, and so on and so forth. But there is a European culture, and the struggle between the globalists and the nationalist populist wing is not simply a matter of border, it's also a matter of culture. That is when they say, we Europeans, we have a culture. What does it mean, as opposed to saying that France has no culture, which Macron says, you know. Culture, in a sense, not only defines, but it points out the other. And the contemporary crisis of post-9-11 world is the issue that there is a war uh, going on within that part of the world, which is Islamic. This internal war happened in Europe, too, between 
the emergence of a modern culture, modernity, <laughs> and the pre-modern culture, the war going on. And what is happening in Europe, the appeasement, which Amir talks about, which we all have spoken about at different points in time, is not to make that distinction because we are so heavily invested in multiculturalism. And so your point, Bob, this multiculturalism is not that we are innocent. We are, in a sense, the proponent of it, Canada. In the parliament itself, represented by the three major parties, including the party that represents Quebec, multiculturalism is now the sacred dogma of the modern world. Macron was deep inside, as, as Amir pointed out, the socialist party. He's a socialist. He's, he's so is a, Le Pen, for that matter. Well, I mean, Le Pen is nationalist. Le Pen is socialist but nationalist. Yes. Uh, uh, I mean, again, distinctions make big differences. Uh, Macron would be completely at home in the NDP. NDP is completely at home with liberals. It's only a matter of emphasis here and there. Now, let's set the record straight. There's no argument over the choice between peace and war, but there's only one guaranteed way you can have peace, and you can have it in the next second. Surrender. Admittedly, there's a risk in any course we follow other than this, but every lesson of history tells us that the greater risk lies in appeasement, and this is the specter our well-meaning liberal friends refuse to face, that their policy of accommodation is appeasement, and it gives no choice between peace and war, only between fight or surrender. If we continue to accommodate, continue to back and retreat, eventually we have to face the final demand, the ultimatum. And what then? When Nikita Khrushchev has told his people, he knows what our answer will be. He has told them that we're retreating under the pressure of the Cold War, and someday, when the time comes to deliver the final ultimatum, our surrender will be voluntary, because by that time, we will have been weakened from within spiritually, morally, and economically. He believes this because from our side he's heard voices pleading for peace at any price, or better read than dead, or as one commentator put it, he'd rather live on his knees than die on his feet. And therein lies the road to war, because those voices don't speak for the rest of us. You and I know and do not believe that life is so dear and peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery. If nothing in life is worth dying for, when did this begin? Just in the face of this enemy? Or should Moses have told the children of Israel to live in slavery under the pharaohs? Should Christ have refused the cross? Should the patriots at Concord Bridge have thrown down their guns and refused to fire the shot heard round the world? The martyrs of history were not fools. And our honored dead who gave their lives to stop the advance of the Nazis didn't die in vain. Where then is the road to peace? Well, it's a simple answer after all. You and I have the courage to say to our enemies, there is a price we will not pay. There is a point beyond which they must not advance. This is the meaning in the phrase of Barry Goldwater, peace through strength. Winston Churchill said the destiny of man is not measured by material computations. When great forces are on the move in the world, we learn we're spirits, not animals. And he said there's something going on in time and space and beyond time and space, which, whether we like it or not, spells duty. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. 
We'll preserve for our children this, the last best hope of man on earth, or we'll sentence them to take the last step into a thousand years of darkness. You're listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. It is thanks to our financial donors that it's possible for us to continue on our journey in the right direction and to share our programming with the world. Visit www.justrightmedia.org to offer your financial support, and while you're there, sample some of our timeless past broadcasts which are all archived for your listening enjoyment at your convenience. We're in studio with Amir Farahi and with Salim Mansour, and I thought we'd switch our attention now to the situation in North Korea. What the heck's going on there? What, what, is, what is the big deal there? Is, is there something that we really have to be concerned about there? Yeah, the, the situation in North Korea is, is getting pretty, pretty heated. And we have to note that there were a series of measures taken by the Obama administration prior to the Trump administration to try and mitigate the risk for an all-out nuclear war. There's a lot of spending going on into military uh, weaponry that uh, would help defend the South Koreans from a potential nuclear strike. The North Koreans uh, are at a point where they are trying to get to what it was, this ideal of making North Korea a nuclear power, so that it is a deterrent from anyone like the United States or any any country, uh, you know, South Korea, Japan, that sort of thing, to want to invade the North Koreans. And so it goes back to the, the founder of, of North Korea, uh, who, who said that one day we will work uh, to make sure that North Korea is going to be a nuclear powerhouse. And they are doing everything they can with the testing of intercontinental ballistic missiles. On a series of, of days, you know, they're testing it out, even though the U.S. has put out a red line, uh, even though other nation states have also put out a red line. Uh, but the North Koreans, really don't care. And so uh, I think if the North Korea, North Korea basically is looking at it this way, they, they, they saw Muammar Gaddafi in Libya when he tried to ensure that Libya becomes a nuclear power and was not able to do so due to the series of pressures and sanctions and that sort of thing. North Korea is basically saying that it's either we become a nuclear power or we won't be able to go and do as we please. And so we're, we're, we're seeing that, and it's a huge threat to the so- South Koreans and Japan. It has major implications for the U.S. and the West because there's a lot of trade. There's a lot of economic trade between South Korea and Japan. So um, it, it, is a, it is no doubt that uh, the Americans have an interest in wanting to protect South Korea and the Japanese. Um, and we can see that with a series of fleets, uh, warships uh, headed towards North Korea and then pulled back. It's just happening on an ongoing basis right now. And I think the biggest, uh, biggest thing that we have to also notice, the key player here is China. China plays a huge role in protecting and has a vested interest in North Korea. It is a very key piece of their of the chessboard, uh, rather. Uh, they can use North Korea for leverage. And I think personally that North Korea in this in this sort of context of what's happening could be used as leverage by the Chinese for their interventions in uh, in the South China Sea. And I think uh, potential negotiations with the U.S. could play out where the U.S. might not be as strict and harsh against uh, against the Chinese in the South China Sea and in return wanting to uh, have the Chinese cooperate with them in putting further sanctions and pressure on North Korea to stop their really craziness, to say the least. Well, they sure come across as a, as a, as a mad country. 
I mean, this is a very complex and very large subject. So just to put it in sure. bullet points over here. North Korea is the last remaining Stalinist uh, society in that sense of the term, the hermit kingdom, completely isolated. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a prison, basically, of whatever the population number is, somewhere around 20 million people, uh, starving, cannot feed itself. And yet the leadership is um, bent upon acquiring, it, it is a nuclear power country now, nuclear weapon state, but acquiring the capacity to deliver the nuclear weapon on a intercontinental basis. Uh, what is this all about? It is about extortion. This is a hermit kingdom uh, that if by having this capacity which they're trying to acquire uh, will make it invulnerable to the other powers uh, surrounding it and will be able to extort in return by uh, periodic threats uh, what it needs to survive. Imagine now, and this, is, this was played out more than half a century ago, uh, Cuba and the Cuban situation where the Soviets were going to land uh, nuclear weapons uh, that would be 90 miles offshore from the United States and what that would have meant in terms of extortion, Latin American uh, spread of communism, etc., which led to the Cuban Missile Crisis, and we know all about that history. The problem began in the 1990s, and every administration since then beginning with Bill Clinton and then Oba uh, George Bush Jr. and Obama, it was roughly 20, a quarter century. They kicked the can down the table. You see, the doctor know of nuclear proliferation was a Pakistani, is a Pakistani alive, Dr. A.Q. Khan, who stole the technology from Europe, from the Dutch, uh, and then built up the Pakistan's nuclear weapon. And he was proliferating underground the nuclear weapon. That's the connection, North Korea, Iran, Libya, and so on. The, what the North Koreans are doing has immense implication because the Iranians are deeply involved with it. The North Korean weapons are also being tested for Iran because that will be parceled out to Iran. Okay. So the North Korean weapon system, intercontinental ballistic missile, and all of it that goes with it is not only to an immediate threat, and you can see the appeasement of the South Koreans and, and has been of the Japanese, of the Chinese, etc. And imagine then the Iranians having the, the weapon, which is what Obama has done, kicked, kicked it down the road. Further, I might add another wrinkle to it. Imagine... If Saddam Hussein had not been, there had not been a regime change, and Saddam Hussein had been sitting there with, with Obama in the White House, Saddam would have been, had the nuclear weapon, and what would be the situation now, you know, in that area. So this is a huge problem. Uh, the Chinese are stuck with it because the Chinese are terrified, whatever it might be, it might be 1.2 uh, billion people country, but they're terrified because of the influx of the North Korean population that will take place if there is a war, war if any shooting war takes place. They are stuck with it. Uh, they cannot take this guy out weapon-wise because this guy, again, if he has a weapon, he can, you know, on a suicidal basis, knock off a few Chinese cities.
So the longer this problem is not resolved, this becomes a global problem. You know, it is a global problem. It becomes even more acute. So the can was kicked down the the the, the years, the decade, and Trump is now stuck with it. In the sense that either Trump does something and cleans up the mess. In the sense, there is a preemption, and and the guy's weapon systems are taken out or some sort of a bargaining is done where the Chinese will stiffen their back and will try to then bring about a regime change of their own in North Korea. That's how dangerous the situation is. Because if that doesn't happen, Japan cannot be restrained. Japan should acquire them. Japan, since World War II, has been reduced to 1% national defense constitutionally. So they will have to change that. Koreans are in appeasement mode. Uh, the new guy who's running for the presidency totally wants to appease them because of their own internal dynamic. But the matter of North Korea is not limited to the Korean Peninsula. As I say, it's Iran, it's Pakistan, it's other Middle Eastern countries, and we have a great mess in our hands. And not only that, I think that it's very difficult to see how it can be resolved uh, amicably for uh, the United States and the South Koreans to have a united Korean Peninsula because a united Korean Peninsula a free uh, Korean peninsula would mean that you'd have an American ally bordering China. And China does not want that, which is probably the reason they went into uh, support of North Korea during the Korean War. Anyway, they did not want a um, capitalist uh, country bordering them. Like they that. do not want it. I mean, your, lo your argument is logical, but at the same time, Chinese is also a nation state uh, that is emerging in the 21st century as a great power, and we can see that multi-power balance is taking place. So China has to define where its larger interest lies, you know, down the decades. It's not simply a matter of North Korea. What is at stake? And I think the meeting with uh, the Chinese president in Mar-a-Lago was a very critical meeting. And it turns out, at least from the body language, that it was a meeting in which uh, some uh, preliminary understanding took place. You think that perhaps the, um, uh, the mindset of communist China has changed and softened so much now that they look at perhaps having an American ally. China is the most capitalist him. country today. Yes, I was just a uh, Communism is simply, it's like, it's like the Ayatollahs in uh, Iran. They're all Islamic, only to the sense that that is their mask they have to wear. I was just listening to a documentary on um, a, a new Chinese city that they just built, expecting it to have one million population by now, and it now has 10 million. Yeah. And um, one of the citizens was saying that you could do anything here. You can start a magazine, you can start a business, you can be a taxi driver, you can own property, you can do anything. And to me, that sounds less like uh, Hong Kong. Yaron Brook of the Ayn Rand Institute just spoke over in communist China and uh, saying that it is a, a remarkable uh, shift over there. So perhaps there is... Um, a taste now, uh, change that would allow an American ally to actually border them in the Korean Peninsula. Yeah, and, and, and destabilization in the area is of no good for any for any of those states, especially China, right? De de destabilization has a lot of implica negative implications for the Chinese as well. Because the North Koreans, you can argue, are also, the North Korean government is, is unpredictable. Uh, you can't you can't read into them. You can't. I mean, you you know what where they're headed, but you don't know at what point this guy is going to break out an all-out war. Um, the other thing is that the U.S., uh, though they have sophisticated cybersecurity technology in which they could probably stop some of these 
some of these uh, missiles from from going over the North Korea into either Japan or South Korea, wherever the target may be. The North Koreans have a series of artillery uh, equipment and weaponry, um, lots of lots of missiles literally lined up on the uh, next to the DMZ, uh, close to the DMZ, and which they can be totally targeted towards South Korea, even if the cybersecurity measures are taken and all sort of GPS coordinations and uh, the uh, technological aspects of it are blocked. Uh, the North Koreans can still go ahead and they're a formidable uh, threat, no doubt about it. I mean, I've flown into Seoul Airport, and you get an idea of just how close this situation is because Absolutely. you can see yeah. North Korea as you start to land. And yeah, exactly. And to, and to, I think Salim makes an, an excellent point in that something needs to happen now. We need we need to take action now because the the can has been kicked down the road. And if we keep waiting and waiting and waiting, then their ability to form intercontinental ballistic missiles and put a nuclear warhead on it is only going to get more sophisticated. And like you said, that technology can also be exported to, um, you know, the, the the findings and the evidence and all the all the things that they would be testing can be exported to states like like Iran um, and and others that pose a threat to the United States and the rest of the world. So um, measures need to be taken now, or else it's only going to get worse. I think we're for an international organization where the nations of the world can seek peace. But I think we're against subordinating American interests to an organization that has become so structurally unsound that today you can muster a two-thirds vote on the floor of the General Assembly among nations that represent less than 10% of the world's population. I think we're against the hypocrisy of assailing our allies because here and there they cling to a colony while we engage in a conspiracy of silence and never open our mouths about the millions of people enslaved in the Soviet colonies in the satellite nations. Now, I know that this is your first visit here. Tell me, how do the colonies strike you? <laughs> oh, they're very cute. Cute. <laughs> Good night, everybody in Texas. <laughs> well, do you understand the political speeches that Ike and Adlai are making? Well, no, but I find it all very exciting. Tell me, which one do you think will make the best king? <laughs> well, either one. They both have shiny crowns, but I... Uh... <laughs> it's, uh... Diana, it's not king, it's president here. Oh, well, I think I like our system better. You know, in England, the king reigns for his entire life, except, of course, for the one who abdicated. Oh, yes, I remember him. He's the one who ran off and married the Jacks player. Yes, I am. <laughs> Bringing it down to a more local level now, and by local, I mean Canada uh, level, it used to be that the left the left-wing parties, the liberals and the Democrats, uh, or in the United States, the Democratic Party, were very protectionist, um, in that sense, nationalist, um, from an economic point of view. That has completely switched now that you've got uh, the NDP, the liberals, New Dem uh, the, um, the Democrats in the States, all for uh, open trade, um, as far as that go, open borders, they were always for, but open trade as well. While, on the other hand, you have your so-called right-wing parties, 
the Republicans in the States and conservatives in Canada vying for a free trade. It was Mulroney who brought in free trade in Canada, you know. And um, while the Republicans now have gone total protectionist, um, things have turned themselves on their head in this uh, global versus national type of discussion, both economically and um, with regards to immigration. Uh, your thoughts on that, perhaps, Amir? It's it's very interesting. The You're right. The NDP and the liberals in, in Canada and the Democrats in, in the States were always the one that came off, at least the way the media would describe them, or even the way they would describe them as the ones that would protect the workers, the working class, that were, you know, the ones that were against corporatism and the ones that were against uh, corporate welfare and the ones <laughs> the ones that were against um, the... Cronyism in the cro- Big Boys Network. Exactly. Yeah. And so now we see, we, you're right, we see a very interesting shift in which the the conservatives are ones who are wanting to protect the state, protect the working class, protect the poor, protect um, the the state's uh, finances and that sort of thing. So um, I think that globe, globalization, uh, though it may have been intended f- to play a contributing a positive role in terms of people's lives, uh, I think has actually had uh, negative repercussions. But what's what's also what's also key here is that many of the free trade agreements that we've had in the past um, haven't been so much you could call free trade. Uh, we've seen, for example, with the Chinese, a lot of currency manipulation, a lot of um, you know cheating in terms of imposing tariffs, um, lots of regulations that actually wouldn't serve the interests of, let's say, Canadian companies, and opposed to whoever the 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 other uh, state is that we're we're dealing with. So these kind these kinds of things have had negative repercussions uh, in terms of uh, unemployment, uh, people not being able to find. Uh, you know, opportunities and that sort of thing. And that has caused frustrations. The conservatives are now saying that we need to, if we are going to have free trade, it should be true free trade. It shouldn't be what we have now where you have, for example, with the TPP, over 6,000 pages of regulations and policies that, that, uh, only those who, who wrote well, it are most likely to be... Uh, that was always true of NAFTA, too. I mean, if, even the original NAFTA, if you looked at it, it was a whole schedule of various tariffs and things like that, although a lot of them were lowering, so they were mm-hmm. moving in the right direction in terms of economic trade. But free trade, I don't think, has ever existed <laughs> between nations no. in its purest form. Even in, even in Canada, we have that problem. And so that's why we see uh, the rise of, uh, you know, uh, people like Donald Trump uh, with with Brexit. I mean, these are all consequent reactions to what we have seen since the 1980s play out, uh, and and we're only going to see more of that. It's not going to it's not going to end. Well, people have maintained, and I have also maintained in many of our discussion in, in your program that uh, things have to be put in the context of the Cold War policies that emerge in the midst of the Cold War emerged because of the context of containing Soviet Union and dealing with Soviet Union and global communism. Uh, And so globalization, people have forgotten the Trilateral Commission of the 1970s and 80s, uh, which was headed by the corporation, the media, the the academia, 
and politicians led by the United States and then joined by Jap Japan and Europeans. This was part of the trilateral community, more open border, more in uh, trading within the advanced capitalist countries and bringing in other developing countries within that mix to uh, contend with and defeat uh, Soviet communism. And it was in the midst of those discussion that our own Canadian politics emerged. Canadian politics uh, is a reactive politics. It is not proactive politics. You know, uh, we don't have that big a market. Our population doesn't stand up to the U.S. Our economy is not as big. But we have a very stable country. We have a history. We have very profound institutions and we are part of the G7, the G5 before that, and so on and so forth. So it's a reactor. The measure is to see what was led by the United States. What the Trump election uh, uh, represented was the correction 25 late years late. Cold War ended in 1992. The drift, the currents kept moving. People as if behaved that the world hadn't changed, but the world had changed underneath it had hollowed out. There was a new world. Uh, and so the left that had opposed, as you pointed out, Bob, the NAFTA, the free trade, uh, you know, Ed Broadbent, the famous election of 1984 and 88, uh, what the left and, and, of course, John Turner and the Liberal Party, what they opposed, they then embrace, again, reactive politics, you know, the benefits flowed and so on and so forth. Uh, and, and nothing changed. And they became the globalists. The left became the globalists, you see. It is, in, again, the reaction is in an American politics. The Republicans uh, embraced globalization to fight communism, the GOP. But they did not abandon what Trump raised the slogan in the last election, America first, which is a code word for mm -hmm. nationalism our interest, which goes back to the traditional value. What is the, what is the national interest of a great power? And it is driven by that. So long there are boundaries, and so long there are cultures, so long there are people who rally around the flag, those are permanent values in some sense. And uh, this correction is taking place, and that's where we come back to. In Europe, in Canada, of course, in the United States, this politics is a changing, it's a reorientation. It is not an abandonment of uh, international trade and, and, and uh, global markets and competition because that, too, has a dynamic of its own, which is the technology. I mean, we are living in the world of personal computers and iPhones. We're not going to go back to the world where, you know, we are cranking on a typewriter. Oh, and, and, and of course, efficiencies <laughs> and, and economic right. efficiencies. Precisely. I think... I Precisely. think the economic argument has carried the globalism argument. Um, yes. Almost, it's been given the monopoly on that argument, if we can put it that way, instead of the other concerns that are not economic per se. Exactly. What does it mean that when ch Chinese uh, billionaires of the last 25 years, uh, following Deng Xiaoping's revolution, uh, and China would, was going to come into the world? China was going to be a power. It was not going to be stopped. I mean, that's, again, the dynamic process. So what does it mean when Chinese billionaires start swooping up real estate in British Columbia? What does it mean to Canadians? 
They're you doing know, it. They're, they're doing they're it here driven in London, out Ontario, the market. too. I can tell but, you well, exactly yeah. across the Canada. But I mean, the focus was it yeah. began in the British Columbia, and as it sweeps across, what does it mean if the oil-producing states start in, uh, buying up property, prime property, which is what they're doing in Montreal, in in in, in Toronto? That means it's driving out the Canadian born. Canadian in the sense, the Canadian citizen out of the market, you know, we, we, we are being driven out of the market. So politicians, by the dynamics, will have to shift and take into account. The reaction or the response time is always lagging behind the reality that happens, sure. you know. And so we, the Trump was a correction, as I said. It was a correction scene. Build a wall was more symbolic than actual wall, whether it gets built. I think it will get built. It will take us time. But the symbolism was, you know, we are American. We're not going to allow uh, uh, us to be overrun by Latin Americans or whoever, which is what the Macron election was. Migration is good for a French economy. Well, go and ask the people that 35%, which... I would put my money on is going to grow over time. Uh, what they think about migration in the short term, he has won it, or, or the Germans. So I think that's that's the oscillation taking place, and and we have to look forward to the person who will be most adept, eloquent, and also passionate about how to reconcile these various things and create a new synthesis. You know mm -hmm. that is you respect the global market, you respect international law, but you do not trade it away at the expense of your people. I, I again I think with for example the, the you know the, some of the academics are now calling it the fourth industrial revolution, some of the elitists are calling it the fourth industrial revolution where you're going to have more of the workplace and more of the uh, processes within uh, for example manufacturing settings and uh, various various jobs being automated, that more people are be going to become disenfranchised and they're not going to have the skills to be able to actively participate in the labor force. So how do you, as a politician, as a policymaker, deal with the number of people who are going to be without a job and who won't have the skills to operate with, within that world where artificial intelligence and uh, software, as well as various uh, trends that we currently see in computing really taking over the current me mental, not physical, but mental labor. And, and that plays a key role both with globalization, with the fu future elections that we'll have. I mean, it, it, all plays, it all sort of plays out in and of itself. It's intertwined. And I think that uh, what we're going to see is more reactionary responses or more reactionary sort of politics from uh, not only places like the U.S., but perhaps even in Canada, perhaps in other European states, like we mentioned earlier with Italy and Germany. Uh, it's only going to increase. Uh, Amir, Salim, thank you for joining us today. The hour flew by as it always does with both of you. Join us again next week when we will continue our journey in the right direction. And until then, uh, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color Color into black and white Under the bedclothes Everything will be alright I gather you want to discuss a television appearance Yes, but it's not so desperately urgent <laughs> I do want to use it to announce my new defence policy What do you think? No <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I think it's a mistake The policy? 
Well, of course, it's tremendously refreshing to have a new mind on the problem, challenging the old ideas, questioning the whole basis of government thinking over the past 30 years. You don't approve of the policy? No, it's not that, Prime Minister. There will be implications, reverberations, repercussions. It needs time to sift and weigh the evidence, review, research, consult. Well, all right. You get on with that, Humphrey, and meantime, I'll announce it in the broth. You can't. <laughs> not yet. Well, we have to tell the Americans. They will have grave objections. It will take many months of patient diplomacy. Delicate issues need sensitive handling. Humphrey, who is it who has the last word about the government of Britain? The British cabinet or the American president? Do you know that's a fascinating question? 